We are continuing our series on confessional apologetics. We are currently looking at an understanding of our theology that comes from the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're talking about the concept of confessional theology as the philosophical method of revelational presuppositional apologetics. So we've talked so far about the history of the Reformation in England. We've talked about the importance of creeds, what led up to the writing of the Westminster Confession, and its importance to us. It's not that the creed supplants the scripture. It is that which we say expresses what the scripture itself teaches. That's very important to us. And thus, it is the scripture for us that is the final authority. And we'll see that in this first section. But it'll be a while getting there, believe me. We have in our text for this series, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Here again, that emphasis of the pattern, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are what? In Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And if you construct this a little bit, you can see from it that the pattern of sound words are understood in faith. In faith, and he says, in love in Christ. Thus, Christ is the expression of those sound words and the pattern of which they speak, beginning from Genesis to Revelation. But it is the Holy Spirit who indwells us that confirms that very faith, love, understanding, commitment in Christ. That gives rational understanding to the word of God. We're also told in Psalm 138 and verse 2, I will worship at thy holy temple and praise the holy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Again, the emphasis of the word. Nothing, nothing in life 
is higher than the word of God. Not even God's own name, which he cherishes and protects. But yet the word is exalted above the very name of God. Here, the emphasis being just how important that word is to us. Well, let's look to the Lord our God in prayer as we come to examine the word of God and talk about these very important things once again because they have a great emphasis and impact upon our life. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the love that you give us in Christ. We thank you, O God, for the spirit that indwells us. Teach us, O God, to be faithful to your word, to love your word, O God, that we would uphold thy word above all things which means we will be governed by your word. We will live by your word. We will apply your word to our lives. We will yield full obedience to your word. We know, O oh God, that we are but sinners saved by grace, but we ask, O oh God, give us, give us the power of the Spirit that we can conform more to the image of your Son as he is proclaimed in the Word. Not our idea of what we believe he is, but as you describe him to us. And as we are to emulate him, help us, O oh God. Help us to fulfill what you have commanded of us. Now, Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which your word and spirit would teach us in this hour. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at chapter 1, entitled, Of the Holy Scripture. But you could subtitle this very easily, Sola Scriptura. The Scripture alone. Why? God's exalted above his very name. The Scripture alone and nothing to be added to it. The opinion of men does not matter. Ancient writings simply do not matter. Mythologies do not matter. The only thing that matters in this life is the Word of God. The only thing. And nothing more. We are bound to the Word. 
We are bound to that which has been given to us through the Spirit who has indwelt us through that regenerating power of God made us to be receivers of that very word. That when God makes promises and declarations, we, by the power of the Spirit that hath renewed us, we seek to do exactly what he has commanded of us. Well, in chapter 1 and here, In section one, we have been seeking to progress concerning this doctrine of scripture. And I say to you, and I'm going to pound this into your head. If you get a headache, I got aspirin, I'll give it to you. The importance of the word. No other foundation the word. Solace is found in the word. Contentment is found in the word. Relief from the stresses of life is found in the comfort of the word by the spirit who indwells us and applies that to our mind. And teaches us, live by the word. Trust in the word. Do not trust in men. Trust in the word. And so it is, we begin here in section one again. I will read it to you. And then I'm going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. This is all one sermon, but actually it's, I don't know what sermon it's supposed to be, but it's the third sermon that's going to be about three or four sermons long. Yeah, it just works out that way. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an old Baptist preacher, long-winded, just like Jason. I get all of these problems from him. I, I go over because he goes over. He's a bad example for me. Section one, if you will. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to Give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Now, people, let me just state real quickly something that just come across my mind by the power of the Spirit, I believe. We're not trying to prove the existence of God. We're trying to prove the Redeemer God. Big difference. Proving 
a deity does not prove it is the God of the Bible. General theism. It's impossible. The divines are making the statement here. With all the evidence of God's fingerprints upon the world of creation, man, creation, and the providence of God that pulls them all together. Wow, they show the goodness, wisdom, and the power of God. And clearly we understand that because the scripture says that very thing to us. And they leave men without excuse. They are a testimony to the creator, redeemer, God. Yet they are insufficient. Think about it. What if you go to a debate, we're going to debate, does God exist? And so I convince out of a thousand people, 900 of them to say there must be a deity. He definitely has demonstrated there is a deity. What's the benefit? Was it finite deity that's greater than man? Is it an infinite deity? Is it one deity? Is it five deities? Or is it a thousand deities? What's the very nature of that deity? Is it corporal or, or corporeal or is it incorporeal? Or is it a combination of the two? Is the outside of time, inside of time? Does he occupy space? You've got a lot of questions you've got to answer and you couldn't. Only thing I proved is there's something that is greater than us that defines Life in one sense. It defines the fact that we are in the image of God and we can't help but think of deity. That the works of creation demonstrate what? A rational order of things. And third, that providentially they are maintained and they continue in the same pattern, in the same way. And those will leave us what? Without excuse. But what can they not do? They cannot give us that knowledge of God. There is a knowledge of God that is necessary that knowledge that defines this God. Is it monotheism? Tritheism? Is it Trinitarian theism? Is he spirit? Or does he have body and parts? You see, all of that is left out. But all of that, to a great extent, as we see Paul at the Orophagus arguing on Mars Hill with the Greeks who defines God. 
who is going to get to the point of redemption and salvation in the message that he gives. You cannot be saved without certain amount of knowledge concerning God, nor of his will. That is to say, what he has determined, what he has done in order to achieve salvation for us. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. He is showing what his will is. And he's showing it to his church. The natural man Paul says, doesn't have the spiritual discernment to understand the meaning. But he is showing to us in the word given what his will is. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. And so it is here we begin with this great doctrine of divine revelation. And we deal with it within the context, as we have already noted, as both that which is general, meaning an innate knowledge that God has placed within us, the ability to be a rational creature endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Our confession says, and special revelation, where God speaks to us directly, interprets those things that are only interpreted by the very word of God. And we call this the absolute knowledge of anything that can be known. Especially of what? The created order of things. Man, creation, and providence. Thus it is that we have this great body of knowledge called truth. Truth is God's truth, but that doesn't mean anything. Because if you don't know the truth of God, then how do you know what's true about the truth of God? Yes, all truth is God's truth. But the revelation of that body of knowledge is based on 
that special revelation given to us and today preserved in the written word. Thus the Bible is the truth of God. And yes, all that God proclaims in the word is true because that's what he thinks. And it's only because he thinks. And thus, the Bible is the truth of God. And that is God's truth. He says it in the very Propositions of the word of God. Thy word is truth. Thy word. You remember that word which he lifts above his own name? That word is what he's talking about. Well, we began to deal with the scriptural annotations, explanatory comments, on this very thing, and we talk about in our understanding the concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, man as the image of God, a rational thinking creature. He is rational, that means he's able to have communication not only with God but with other men. It's essential. A rational thinking being. He's capable of logically reasoning certain things in life. But as a sinner, and we'll see this in the confession, he cannot reason himself to God. That's just plain. The concept of free willism is based off the old doctrine of Pelagian, and then it was, it was adopted and modified in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. It was called semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism is simply creating that very central idea of man to being free to choose or not choose. He gets to decide. He gets to reason to the truth of God and decide whether or not he will accept what God has said as truth. Needless to say, that came right out of the Garden of Eden. That's what Satan said to man. Hath God not said? Well, what has God said? Well, you don't really believe it, do you? You decide for yourself. You determine what is right and what is wrong. You define your own morality. Because in the day that you act that way, you will act independent of God, and that will make you like God. Great lie. And we would say in our own expression, straight out of the pits of hell. Free willism began in the garden and is straight out of the pit of hell. Man cannot reason himself out of 
his sinful condition. It simply cannot be done. But yet, man has a spirit. We see it in Job 32.8. But it is the Almighty that gives him the understanding. He can receive the communication from God, the special revelation. Oh, he has a general revelation. And that general revelation is this. It's propositional knowledge. But it is not validated. It is not justifiable. Man can think many things and draw many, not only irrational, but false conclusions apart from the work of the Spirit of God within him. Understanding, true understanding in the sense of who God is and what is his will concerning his creation and man and redemption only comes from him giving that understanding to a sinner through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Well, we talked about that aspect. Now I want to move on. There is something else that I have got to deal with that I think is very important, and I want to drum this into your head very importantly, that there is an inmate morality in man. In other words, the constitutional nature of man has had the works of the law written upon his heart. He rejects them, but he knows in a way that as he violates them, he has a guilty conscience about it. And yet, he cannot keep them. Isn't it a vicious cycle for the lost man? I know I shouldn't steal, but he steals anyway. And then he says, boy, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And he goes and steals some more. Why? He's caught in a vicious cycle because that knowledge of both the general order of things that God has created in this universe and the innate knowledge that he has put in the morality that is also within him cannot keep him from doing what is governing his very nature, sin. He's captivated by it. That's what original sin is about. Adam in the garden, what? Falls into sin. And his whole posterity is brought under that condemnation. Thus, you know, and, and we can prove that point. It's very simple. Just think about it. God takes Adam and says, you see that tree? You may eat of that tree. You see that tree? Of that tree you may not eat. Because in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. 
He didn't have to explain it to him. Adam understood it. Adam's a thinking being too. He knew in the garden what God meant. Eat, don't eat. You're confronted with two options. Obey or break the law, break the command. But the day you break this command, you shall die. The consequence is death. Adam was not dying when he was created. He was living. The actual aspect of death was set forth after the fall. And Adam began to die. And spiritually, he was dead. He could not choose the tree of life any longer. Well, this innate morality is very important because, you see, it teaches us something. It teaches us how we are always before God, guilty of breaking his law. And what is the law of God? It's the Ten Commandments. It's the moral law. And yes, it is still binding upon men and nations the Bible says sin is the transgression of the law of God. Now, if there is no law, there is no sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for Christ. Because nobody's a sinner anymore. The law's gone. You can't be charged. It's an impossibility. But that innate morality that which is what we often refer to the concept of natural theology being that there is this common morality among the people it's included with what innate knowledge especially of the divine. And thus combined with morality, what does it teach us? Well, that which is divine must have a set standard. And when we violate it, we're going to get judged. Oh, that's why we hate it. Bring up judgment concerning transgression and whoever's performing the transgression, he's going to hate it. What do you think the concept of hate speech is all about? Striving to keep man from bringing God's judgment upon them for their evil and wicked way. The inability to call men to repent of sin. To say to them, thus God has said in his word, that is a violation, this is a violation, this is a violation. 
You have transgressed the law of God. You must repent of these things. That's hate speech. So it is. Man hates the law of God. And he hates it so bad, he not only has to deal with the imago Dei, man, it's the image of God, but he's got to deal with this fact that on his very constitutional nature is the law of God or the works of the law written. So what does he do? He seeks to erase it in every which way he can. That's why God said in the Old Testament, there are just some things you don't do. You don't get tattoos. That was forbidden in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to get into that whole argument of whether or not you should have tattoos. I love art. Some things are beautiful, but I prefer them on my wall, not on my skin. Why? Because these were things that were what? Seeking to erase the image of God in man. That's what abortion is about. Every sin is designed to try to eliminate that which is upon the conscience nature of man. Not only is there something greater than him, but there is a law by which is going to give an account to whom he does not know. He just knows it's greater than him. Well, Romans 1, 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of what? Death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They not only do the things that lead to death, but they give hearty approval to those who practice the same thing. And isn't that what we're looking for? Isn't that a part of the very nature of man's sinfulness? Yes. Welcome to the female woman haters club. All of us divorced men, we've committed adultery. Come on in, brother. Congratulate. Somebody wants for somebody to say, it's okay. Come be with us. Problem of it is, where they're going is kind of high. Well, I'd say very high. But at least they go knowing even though they have violated their own conscience on these things, they know what they've done is wrong and they feel guilty about it. They're looking for others to give them what? Support, 
sympathy, pat on the back, say, hey, it's okay. Join the human race of men who have committed adultery. We see it in everything. Conform to the sinful and get the, what? Applause of the wicked. Isn't that what we're being told with all this Marxist critical theory going around? If you'll think in this way and think like a Marxist, we will pat you on the back and say, now you're beginning to get it. Yeah, but it violates the law of God. Don't, don't think about that. But you can't help but think about it. Then you've got to learn to erase it. How do you erase it? Well, the ultimate way to erase it is what? Take your own life. Do you realize how high the suicide rate is in the world? Men no longer able to live with their sin and their guilty conscience. And they murder themselves. Knowing the righteous of judgment of God, there even is this knowledge that the judgment of God is right. It's righteous. It is just. Well, you see the same thing in Romans 2.1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. It's not that your judge, judging is wrong. God tells us, you who are spiritual judge all things. I hate it when Christians say, oh, you shouldn't judge. Why? God told me to. With the spirit that indwells me in the written word, I ought to know how to judge these things. Man, if you can't judge them, then you got a problem. You got the word, you got the spirit. Your eyes have been opened to the truth and you say, oh, you shouldn't judge. Who else would you want to judge you? Lost man? What he's saying is to the lost man is, who are you to judge anyone when you yourself judge yourself and condemn yourself. Because what? You judge them, but you're doing the same thing as them. But what is judgment? It is an act of morality. It is a moral principle in man. But without the Spirit of God, what happens when you judge? You condemn yourself because you're judging others in what you yourself are partaking of. Get it? Again, a demonstration of the innate morality that God has placed within man. 
Then in Romans chapter 2, it becomes even more specific, beginning at verse 14. <clears throat> For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the ten tablets of stone, by nature do the things in the law, the law written upon the constitutional nature of man, all men have this written upon their nature. Although not having the law are a law to themselves. That is, they themselves still have the law written upon the constitutional nature. They don't have the ten tablets or the ten uh, commands on two tablets of stone, first table and second table of the law. But even without it, we have this innate morality of God's works of his law written on our heart, and thus that is a law just as if the Ten Commandments were given to us like they were to Israel. The law is the law, whether it's in stone or in the heart. If it's on the constitutional nature of man, it is something he cannot escape, he cannot live without thinking. But then look what he says. Who show the work of the law written in the hearts. They show it. They manifest it. Why? They make judgments. They think about things. They feel guilty about things. Their conscience also bearing witness. In other words, they feel guilty. They not only show the law, but they show the guilt. They know that they are transgressors, that what they've done is morally wrong, and their conscience will also bear witness with them. And between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Another judgment, another moral judgment. They either condemn themselves or they begin trying to excuse their sin. You see the point? The point is, the scripture is very clear. Man is and has the law of God in his constitutional nature. You know when you've done wrong. You know that when you judge others, you yourself are judging and condemning yourself because you do the very same thing. You decide. You make a judgment. You judge. You're always involved in morality. You know, have you ever heard that silly statement? Well, you know, you can't, you can't politically force man into or you can't have a morality forcing political concepts upon us. <clears throat> it's the stupidest thing ever, somebody ever said. You know why? Because all law, all politics, 
All legal determinations are what? Moral. The question isn't, are you going to legislate morality, which is what they're arguing about. The question is, what morality are you going to legislate? The law of God or the law of man? That is the whole point. Man is always morally making decisions second by second by second in his life. He can't escape it. All of life is moral. So the question is, whose morality? the one that God put upon your constitutional nature or the world's morality. You see, that's the problem with this whole Marxist program. And by the way, I'm thinking, I'm going to get with Jason, I'm thinking we need to do about a one-hour program called Karl Marx Goes to Seminary. We're being told if you want to think right, you must adopt Marxist thinking. The world being brought in and synthesized with some kind of a gospel. And you know the problem with that is? It's not the real gospel any longer. It's a false gospel. It's a fake gospel. Whoop, there goes his hate crime. Sorry. But you see, this is the whole point. This is what I'm trying to get to. I want you to understand. Man is always being confronted through either the divine image, the creation, the design of the providential things of God, always repeating and doing the same thing over and over again, carrying out his purpose, his will. And we are always given a responsibility to make a moral choice. But in general revelation, you can't make that moral choice because you don't know what it is you're to believe. You must have special revelation. And it must govern your thinking and your decisions in life. Let me quote from Robert Shaw and then I'll bring this to an end. Robert Shaw makes this observation. Listen carefully. As the marks of a deity are so clearly impressed upon all the works of creation, so we learn from the history of former times and from the observation of modern travelers that in every country and at every period some idea of a superior, or if you will, divine being, and some species of divine worship have prevailed. Worship meaning that they realize the more responsibility to honor that deity. The persuasion of a god is universal, which if you believe Shaw, and I do, 
The argument is not, does God exist? To state that he exists is meaningless. The question is, what God exists? He must be defined. He must have specificity given about his nature and of his will for his creation. Thus he says, the persuasion of God is universal, and the most ancient records do not conduct us to a period in history of any people when it did not exist. Unquote. Boy, he's really laying down the principle, isn't he? Notice two things. Worshiping God. Uh, excuse me, that's the first tablet of the law. Thus, worship is a moral act. You get it? In every place on the four corners of the earth, as if the earth was flat, but it's not. Don't believe those wackos saying the earth is flat. It's not. It's just somebody who has some wacky idea to get notoriety so that he can get 15 minutes of fame. But it's not right. Scripture tells us that. But I digress. At every point and place throughout history, there is a testimony that all people believe some kind of a superior or divine being. And even if it is not outside of them, then they make man his own divine being. There is no such thing as a real atheist. Only in theory. Because even the atheist has then said, I'll be my own God. I'll determine for myself what is right and wrong. But note what he says. The two things we're looking at in this section are telling us there is some kind of a deity and that people worship all over the world that universal deity that they cannot escape from. Innate knowledge and innate morality combined together. And thus, when we talk about the whole man, that's what we're talking about. The whole man being called to the whole Christ. This is what makes the Reformed faith so tough to live. And why I believe that certain aspects of Christianity hate it and reject it because it not only requires us to be a righteous thinking people who honor God, but who live the morality God has commanded of us. And when you take away the moral law of God, when you say, well, God's moral law no longer, those Ten Commandments no longer bind us, you're heading down the path to atheism, even if it's in theory. A pure naturalism. Or if you will, humanism 
in its purest form. Why? Because you're going to try to eviscerate God before it's over. Because it's not enough just to try to kill the morality. You can't escape it. And you can't escape the idea of the divine. And it holds your conscience guilty. To the point that man seeks to destroy himself. Be it with the best education in the world. Be it with everything he can use, whether it's drugs or alcohol or any other thing, whether he can destroy his life in any manner, that is a transgression of those ten commandments of God. He is seeking to, what? Do away with the image, but he can't do it. The harder he tries... Kind of like being caught in a spider's web. The more you fight it, the more you're stuck. And you can't fight it. God's going to win this round. You just haven't been able to come to understand what that means. God says, repent of your sin. My answer is, you know, there's some people that say, well, how do you know who the elect are? I have no idea. I only know them after God does the work of regeneration. It becomes evident in their life. My answer is, can you repent of your sins? Do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to live by the law of God? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God must be obeyed. No longer making excuses, but obeying the law of God. Very unfortunate. Are you willing to trust that the propitiation God has given to us in Christ can save us from condemnation? that we can be set right before God and justly restored to him in a right manner. Will you believe God's word? Will you trust God's promises of his son? Will you live by those commands in your life? There's the evidence of a person who is or who is not an elect. It is shown in his profession of faith and the life that he lives. God help us to not only come to know the truth of this God and of his will for salvation, how that we are to live, honor him, first in his worship of the first four commandments and in our relationship based upon the first law, the application of the second table, which is the next six commandments of God. Reformed faith is a hard way to go in life. I'm going to tell you something. 
But here's a secret. It's God's way. Everything else is going to fall short. Please, determine this day you will live for God and you will live by the standard he has given us to live by, his law. Be obedient. Because if you're not obedient, I got news for you. You're deceiving yourself. You're going to hell. Oh, I know sinners are saved by grace, and grace pardons us from our sins. Yes, when we repent. But when people continue to say, well, I've repented, but they continue willfully to violate the law of God and do not strive to keep it in their life, something's wrong, something's missing. I'll bet it's the Spirit of God, isn't it? Honor God. Worship the King. Put your hope, your faith, and your trust in the word that is lifted above God's own name. Make all your judgments in life based upon that word. May that word be our guide, our lamp, our light in the path of life. Shall we pray?